Hey guys, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Figs, and in Louisville, Kentucky, one of the things that you have is a lot of books and a lot of guys doing ministry and a lot of really smart guys uh, that you can ask about things like the atonement, which is what we're talking about today. So uh, for a lot of us, you know, atonement, justification, these terms have a theological sound to them, uh, but it's really hard to put your arms around what they actually mean. And so what I wanted to do in the podcast episode today is I've got two of my good friends with me, Jarrett Ford and Coy Still. Hello. And uh, we are going to have a discussion about the atonement. And one of the templates that we're working from is a new book by a theologian named Oliver Crisp called Approaching the Atonement. And uh, regardless of whether you read the book, it's been helpful for us because it's allowed us to think through the different ways that the atonement has been conceived in Christian history, the different pieces that go into the atonement, and uh, most importantly, what the Bible says about the atonement. So I'll put a link in the show notes to the book if you want to check it out. But for us, it's just been a nice template to get this conversation started. So uh, because some of you guys don't know Coy and Jared, I wanted to give them just a chance to say hi and introduce themselves. Coy? Yeah, so my name is Coy Still. And like Cole said, I reside in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm in the PhD program at Southern Seminary where I'm studying New Testament under a guy named Dr. Thomas Schreiner. And I work in ministry. I'm the youth minister at Clifton Baptist Church here in Louisville. And those are a few things about me. Yeah, so basically take that description and just replace my name, and you basically got my bio. <laughs> yeah, it's a copy and paste. <laughs> I'm also one of Dr. Schreiner's students. Cole and I have been friends for a really long time. Um, studying New Testament as well, and professional nerd. There you go. Yep. I think that's probably the profession of most people around here. Yep. Absolutely. Um, so, guys, to kick off the discussion of the atonement, I, I think one of the things that's a little bit daunting, if you're sitting here, you've never gone to seminary, um, and you hear the word atonement, there's probably some like sirens that immediately go off that we're wading into some deep waters. But the reason I think this is really important for every Christian to think about is the atonement at its most basic level is the mechanism through which our sins are forgiven. And we'll kind of talk about their for, forgiveness is an interesting term when it comes to the atonement. Uh, but that our sins are paid for and the mechanism that allows Christ to do that. And what makes it so that Christ dying in our place actually has any effect on our lives now. So to begin, the atonement is, is a different concept than a lot of things in history. We think about the Trinity, for example. Well, yeah. the Trinity was really well-defined early in the church's history through the creeds and through discussions. Mm-hmm. And you think about things like the divinity of Christ, the canon of Scripture. These things have been set in stone, if you will, for a really long time. But for some reason, the atonement isn't like that. The atonement has a little bit more wiggle room in it. And for yeah. such an important doctrine, that's a little bit surprising. Mm-hmm. So Given the way that the doctrines of the atonement have functioned in history, what are some of the key elements or the key issues that we have to talk about when we bring up something like the atonement? Yeah, so I think it's important to take a step back and say that when we're talking about the atonement, we're talking about what does it mean that Christ died for us? I would imagine that most of the people listening to this podcast would say that that's true. But believe it or not, like Cole just said, it's not obvious exactly what that means. So as far as the key issues you have here, you have God who's holy, who's just, who punishes sin 
and has to even punish sin, I think most people would argue, although we'll get into more detail about that today. And then you have us that are not those things. We're not holy. We are sinful. We've fallen short, all that sort of language. And the question is, how do you get those two back together? Mm -hmm. And so a good summary that I've always heard to describe that is breaking down the word atonement itself. It's kind of self-descriptive. And um, so you have at one meant. So the idea of bringing God and man back together, bringing them um, together as one. So mm-hmm. those, in my opinion, are the key issues. But there are also some periphery issues as well. How does that relate to death? Because often Christ's death is described as the death that conquers death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's those things. It's w- what was Christ's death for? It's for us, but in what sense? And then how does it re- help us relate to God or reconcile us to God, whatever language you want to use? Yeah, I totally agree with Jared. I think that when you're talking about the atonement, you're talking about the why and how questions. And that's where the conversation can get a little bit deep. But I think every Christian cares about those questions. I remember when I was growing up, I really liked to read fantasy novels. I was cool like that. And I remember reading The Lord of the Rings, and I loved those books. But one thing that was frustrating for me as a kid when I was reading those books for the first time is that J.R. Tolkien never explained how the magic works. Now, as a kid, I probably wanted to know because I wanted to try it myself. But I wanted to know, did it work through the staff? Did Gandalf say certain words? How did it work? So when we come to the atonement, I think we're interacting with that question that all Christians care about. Why? How? How does this become a reality for me? And I think all the questions that Jarrett raised, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, these other things come into play when you start to ask that why and how question. Yeah, Coy, we're going to have to do a separate podcast at some point on, on the why and how of Is magic. Lord of the Rings a uh, <laughs> rite of passage for every young Christian boy? I yeah, think it is. Yeah, consider it kind of an apocryphal word. Not <laughs> good, good for every Christian to read. Um, but, you know, that's a great way to, to, to phrase it because it's one thing to say Christ died in my place. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I think, you know, the, the most common presentation of the gospel probably is the bridge. And so you have you on one side and you have God on the other. And then miraculously in the middle of the presentation, you draw this big cross bridge in the middle. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's the obvious problem of getting over the top of the cross without any kind of belay <laughs> equipment. Uh, but outside of that... It's flat, bro. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but outside of that, um, you know, it, it, it is kind of assumed, okay, so Christ died for us, but what unites us with him? Mm-hmm. Uh what causes his act on the cross, resurrection, to have anything to do with us? And it's an easy, almost cop-out answer to say faith, but yeah. uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And so to begin the discussion, I think you have to start where Jared started with sin. Mm-hmm. So one of the fundamental issues in, in atonement theology is what is the nature of sin and what does it cost? Why are we even in a situation where we have to have an atonement in the beginning? So if we say we are all sinful, what are the implications of that that are going to be helpful to think about when we talk about the atonement? And I want to say, too, like not only do you have those two two, um, starting points, us being sinful, God being holy, and then what does that mean for the atonement? Depending on what you believe about the atonement, how you conceive of it, how you think of the mechanism as... Cole talked about earlier, it'll have ripple effects back out. So depending on what you think Christ's death did, how it satisfied God's holiness, if it does that at all, or how it 
cleansed us from our sin, took the penalty for our sin. Again, we'll get into details here in a second. It might have ripple be- effects back out and have implications for God's holiness itself and God's sin, even though those are starting points for the conversation. So mm-hmm. it, that's another issue here is it, it's not a self-contained doctrine, which very rarely are doctrines that way. Right. But it, it's important to point that out. Yes, Christ died for us, but the way how not only matters for us individually, but for how we conceive of God, rightly or mm-hmm. wrongly. Yeah, so if we were going to lay out a, kind of a, a starting point, it would be that we are sinful. Yes. And one of the implications of sin is it needs to be dealt with. Somehow. And, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to think about that. Does it need to be dealt with in terms of it has to be forgiven, the debt has to be paid, the wrath of God has to be satisfied, uh, the, the uh, wages of sin is death, so somebody has to die. I mean, there's a lot of implications, but the, the starting point has to be there is a debt of some kind that must be paid. Mm-hmm. And when you start to think about passages in the Bible that deal with this, um, you get into all kinds of different metaphors and motifs for what that debt actually is and how it can be paid for. But one of the things just from the get-go is an atonement is not really an atonement if it doesn't deal with sin in some way. Unless sin is dealt with, paid for, uh, sacrificed for, shedding of blood, then there is no atonement. Mm -hmm. And uh, surprisingly, at least the way we framed it, there are some versions of the atonement that don't have any kind of way to deal with sin. What we'd say, they don't have any mechanism. Um, So in the rest of the time here, I want to go through a couple of different versions of the atonement with you guys. But I think... That's one of the kind of the ground rules that we have to establish is, okay, if you have an atonement, you have to deal with sin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you guys add anything to that? Is there anything else that's like, okay, for all the versions, here's one of the things that's got to be true. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And just to build off of that, when it comes to sin, one of the really interesting things that the Bible teaches in Romans 5, for example, is that people aren't just sinful because of personal decisions they've made, but they're actually sinful because they're a part of a human race that's sinful because Mm -hmm. of Adam's sin. And that's a really integral part of the Bible story. One illustration actually from the book that I thought was helpful is that if you have an acorn, and the acorn is diseased. Mm-hmm. The disease is going to continue in the acorn as it eventually grows up into a tree. And Adam's sin for all humanity is like that disease in the acorn where it infects the human race across mm-hmm. history. And so I think that helps with giving the scope of human sin by realizing that it's not just because of the decisions we've made in our own life, but it's also because of the sin that we've inherited as well. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because I think one of the problems in talking about anything theological is it's tempting to reason in ways that are foreign to the Bible and not to reason in ways that are actually biblical ways of reasoning. Mm-hmm. And so one, one uh, easy example for this topic is the people, and I've felt this, I'm sure you guys have too, where it's like, why am I liable for Adam's sin? I mean, not to mention I'm liable for my own sin, but when we get into inherited sin, for example, it's like, why would I be liable for Adam's sin? I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, as, as Shylin's, song Atonement Q&A, which is where I learned most of what I know about the atonement is on (laughs) uh, CDs. But he says the charge brought there is that that was not fair, Uh, that we shouldn't be held for out of sin. It's like, well, in a biblical way of reasoning, then the question you should be asking is, how then can I be forgiven when somebody else pays the price? Yeah. So in the biblical, in, in in the world that the Bible presents, 
actually you can be included in things that you weren't there for. We are included in Adam. Of course, we have also sinned because we have a sin nature. Uh, but we are also somehow included in Christ, and so we've been forgiven for the debt that he paid. So like that acorn, it's not just about you. You grew on a bad tree. You are growing a bad tree. You are producing other bad trees. That's a biblical way of reasoning, and that's going to come back around because that's the only way that we can actually be forgiven. Yeah, that's right. And I think you need to be a little bit specific about how sin needs to be dealt with. So Cole said, an atonement involves dealing with sin. True, but there's kind of a weak and a strong way to do this. And in my opinion, a good view of the atonement has to exist in the strong way. So what I mean is, and Coy hit on this, is that in a weak view, an atonement can deal with sin in the sense of it can deter you from sin and kind of leave you to yourself to overcome that sin by your choices, hopefully right choices from then on out, or it can deal with sin in a stronger sense, take it away in some important sense, not just giving an example to follow, but the death itself is, let's call it the weapon, you know, because mm-hmm. we're on Lord of the Rings, the weapon by which, you know, sin is taken away. It's not left in you. It's You're not left to your own device. It actually does the doing away with mm-hmm. instead of leaving you to do away with it yourself. I think that's important to know, too. Mm-hmm. So the first model, maybe we would say, or, or version of the atonement is something called Christus Victor. And Latin words. Uh, Latin, we got Latin words here. We're in theology so here. We're in the Latin you, words. You haven't turned off the podcast already. Don't turn it off just yet. <laughs> but uh, Christus Victor, roughly translated, Christ the Victor. Yeah. Uh, because that was hard to of, guess, huh? Both of those are cognates. <laughs> so uh, what you probably thought that means is exactly what it means. Yeah, exactly. And <clears throat> the appeal of something like Christus Victor, uh, and, and Crisp really does a good job of dealing with this in the book, is it at least seems old. Right. It's been attributed to the, the church fathers, and, yeah. it, and it may be that a couple of them advanced something similar to this, certainly not the only view of the church fathers. But uh, when you come across Christus Victor today, it's a version of the atonement that talks about the broad scope of what Jesus did, both on the cross and in his resurrection. Yeah. Um, what do we need to know about this view? So this one's kind of in the name, right? Mm-hmm. This one's kind of in the name, where the, the heart of this is... It is a Christ died for us, but it's more about picturing Jesus or depicting Jesus as this like valiant warrior that conquers evil and everything associated with it. So death, Satan, the world, Christ on the cross was victorious, hence the Christus victor part, mm-hmm. over those things yeah. um, is the basic idea. And that's really, honestly most of what there is to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a good example of this from Scripture is Colossians two fourteen and 15, which says he erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was taken against us and opposed us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And then this is the part that's really relevant. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. Mm-hmm. He triumphed over them in him. And so this view is trying to take account of that biblical data and talk about how Christ defeats evil in his Mm -hmm. death. Yeah, I think when you think big picture, this is what usually comes to mind, is Christ has defeated death, Christ Mm -hmm. has defeated the powers. You think about uh, ways that we talk about being saved in in the sense that, you know, if Christ has died for you, in the end there's no accuser and there's no death has been defeated. Mm -hmm. All these lines in some way go along with a, a more of a Christus Victor version of the atonement where it's like the the large scope of Christ paying for sin, defeating death, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and then 
at the end, we live with God forever. Now, what, what would the shortcoming of this version be? Yeah, so I think that one of the things that's noticeably absent from this view, to go back to where we started and our two starting points, is God. So it pictures us as slaves to evil and its cronies. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, God in Jesus, conquers evil and its cronies, and we are released from our captivity, and as Cole said, to live with God forever. But those evil and its cronies are not our only enemies as sinners, right? Ultimately, our sin, if it's against anyone, it's not against sin itself, it's against God. So that's the biggest, one of the biggest issues here is it leaves God out of the picture. It leaves God's holiness out of the picture. It leaves his need to be satisfied, his need for his Mm -hmm. wrath to be satisfied out of the picture um, and even as you see what Coy read in Colossians 2, it seems like it's half of the puzzle because the first half of that text that Coy read seems to support some form of substitution, which we'll get into here in a second. So mm-hmm. it has biblical support, but as it's on its own, leaves out God mm-hmm. and leaves out some of the texts that talk about the atonement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about that famous story from G.K. Chesterton when a major newspaper was taking responses to the question, what is the problem with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote in with a one-word answer, me. And I think Christus Victor struggles to talk about how uh, the atonement of Christ solves the problem that each individual person has with their own sin before God. Yeah, yeah I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I think it's broad in scope, and so you lose a little bit around the edges mm-hmm. uh, where it comes to how am I involved in this, and who is my debt actually assigned to? Right, debt's yeah. not random. Uh, uh, right, yeah, it's not, it's not <laughs> just like there are bad guys in the universe, and our only problem is that they need to be killed. Mm-hmm. And so Christ does that. That's yeah. that's not the extent of the problem. Now, it does speak to something that's really important, uh, but it's not it's not, not really a full solution. Yeah. So an example of somebody who has this kind of view, and we don't want to be oversimplifying things here, but just to give an example, I would say N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, he, he believes more than just what we've said, but he's a good example of somebody who puts a lot of stress on the Christus Victor element yeah. of uh, the atonement. And supposedly, historically, this has been the predominant view. Now, that's been called into question, yeah. but if you look before basically the Middle Ages and maybe the early Middle Ages even... Uh-huh. This is kind of the language that you'll see. Christ the conqueror. Right. <clears throat> so the second view that we want to talk about is the ransom view. Uh, what is this one? So the ransom view is basically the idea that Christ reconciles us to God by paying a ransom price in the form of his life. Now, a classic question for this view to answer is, who is the ransom price to? Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of debate over that. In some early examples of this model of the atonement, people have thought that maybe the ransom price was even paid to the devil. Mm-hmm. Other people have thought that it was paid to God, and that's a difficult question for this view to answer. Yeah, it is. The thing that I think there's a major strength here in what you've said is it really does seem to capture a lot of the language of Scripture, mm-hmm. especially if you think about the atonement as a version of sacrifice. Yeah. So, again, this is not the predominant version of atonement that we see in the New Testament, but in some places, like the book of Hebrews, for example, we see really strong sacrifice motifs mm-hmm. where Jesus is shedding his blood like an Old Testament sacrifice to pay a debt. And uh, we talk about this a lot. 
Yeah, just in terms of the way that we typically speak about being saved, he paid our debt. This is kind of a ransom view. Or we were slaves to sin, and he purchased us. That's a, a ransom phrase. Yeah, and again, to reiterate what Coy said, I think the biggest weakness here is usually when this is talked about as a distinct view from penal substitution, the ransom is paid to individuals you wouldn't expect, like sin or Satan. The debt is to a particular individual And again, often when it's talked about, God kind of gets left out. Even though it seems like in a lot of the texts that we're bringing up, the debt is owed to God. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what helps distinguish the ransom view from something like a more uh, more of a penis substitution view. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth saying that the ransom view is very old. Yes. Uh, And and again, you know, as we're moving through these different types, it's not to say, hey, this one is wrong, this one is wrong, this one is wrong, here's the right one. Um, although kinda, we may argue yeah. for what we think is the right <laughs> one, but uh, there's nothing wrong with advancing something like the ransom view. It just seems incomplete. Yeah, I think we have to have a respect for these views because they're old, but sometimes you have either of two extremes. One extreme says it's wrong because it's old. Mm-hmm. We have progressed past it. The other says, ironically, it's right because it's old. We have to be right in step with what the church has always said and exactly what they've said. And I think both extremes are clearly wrong and for a number of reasons but just to point that out at the beginning is um, the fathers of the faith those that existed before us should be respected conversation partners Mm -hmm. but they're not infallible conversation partners so yes these two views were the predominant view throughout church history but that doesn't alleviate them from evaluation is all I simply want to say Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so an, an example of somebody who might stress uh, a ransom view? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Irenaeus and Athanasius are two mm-hmm. that are typically held out. And again, I think, again, this is kind of what I was saying earlier, uh, is that I think they get caricatured a little bit. They have elements of a lot of the things we're going to talk about. But those two guys who, if you don't know who they are, they were guys writing way early on, like um, I think Irenaeus is second century. Mm-hmm. And then Athanasius is maybe fourth. Um, again, sorry if I'm That's off right. a few centuries, guys. But so they're they're way early on theologians of the church that were highly influential in developing what we think of Jesus and him being the God Man and the Trinity and so on. Mm-hmm. I think those those guys are good examples. Yeah, and I think the ransom view is a good example of a historical development in Christianity that a lot of people don't hold that view today, yeah, but it yeah. really influences how Christians think about the atonement. So it's a yeah. part of the conversation, even though it's not what people hold today, because like yeah, Cole said earlier, it really does reflect a lot of the clear biblical data about redemption and 1 Peter 1.19 talks about the precious blood of Christ, which is actually the redemption price yeah. for Christian salvation. And this view right. really tries to grapple with that language. Right. Um, well, let's keep moving because we, we, we have a few more to hit. The next one I think is really popular, even though I think it's probably the, the least... Uh, it's the least clearly defined in terms of a mechanism. That would be what we call kind of the exemplarist view of the atonement. So if we're going to define this as that Christ comes and dies and rises as an example for believers to follow. So the fact that he both set an example and lived an exemplary life, he lives a perfect life, uh, somehow 
enables us to do the same thing. Right. Like uh, get up from the dead. Yeah. So <laughs> how does this one how does this one work? Yeah, so I think the exemplarist view of the atonement really picks up on the biblical language that we're supposed to follow Christ's example. But it makes the claim, like Cole was indicating, that somehow following Christ's example deals Mm -hmm. with our sin problem. Now, I don't think that this view is really successful in Mm -hmm. that way because I don't think that following Christ's example alone at the end of the day, is sufficient to deal with our sin problem. Right. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, this, to a certain degree, leaves out both the starting points. It leaves out God, because nothing is said about appeasing God's wrath, appeasing His justice, and it kind of leaves us out in terms of dealing with sin in the weak sense that I explained earlier. It's like, Christ died, He set a good example, now go for it, all right? Conceived on its own, like without adding anything to it. And so it, it really leaves us still kind of in our problem, that Romans 5 problem that Coy brought up, where we still have sin. We're not only guilty for Adam's sin, but we're still enslaved to Adam's sin that the other versions of the atonement uh, deal with. Now, I will say that isn't to say that the Bible doesn't hold out Christ as an exemplar. Mm-hmm. Like First Peter is filled with that language when it says stuff about you know us being counted um, worthy, and you see this in Acts 2, but counted worthy to suffer the same things that Christ said. And he puts Christ out as this exemplar who faced death in a calm manner. Uh, so I want to distinguish between the exemplar view is a total account of the atonement and the fact that sometimes the Bible holds out Christ as an example because the two aren't the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't want to deny the view of the atonement and then assume that it's always a bad thing when Christ is held out as an example mm-hmm. and his death in particular. Yeah, I don't really take the exemplar's view very seriously as a theological uh, ex- explanation of the atonement. Like you guys have said, I don't think it works. However, I think it's worth bringing up in this discussion because some of the things that we as Christians say when we talk about being saved... Um, Certainly in in some of the apologetic attempts or gospel sharing attempts that we make reflect an exemplarist understanding of what Christ did. So just to give an example, uh, when we preach the gospel to somebody and we basically appeal to Christ and having a transformative encounter with him, a lot of times the way we explain that would be... um, he lived this amazing life, showed us what life should look like, so we too should live like that. That's a little bit of an exemplarist way of explaining what Christ has to do with you. Yeah, at least on a first touch, you want to do more than that. I think you could yeah. say that in the right context, and it means something good, something like what First Peter is talking about, but definitely when you're having a first touch with someone and sharing the gospel with them, I think you should say that Christ dealt with that will sin in the strong sense, not just, right. hey, Christ did this awesome thing, so follow in his footsteps. Yeah, another example would be, again, not necessarily wrong, but just incomplete would be when we talk about Christ in such a way that his life somehow enabled us to live a better version of our own life by, by watching what he did. Really, with non-believers, I think what we need to press is the main problem is not that you're unable to accomplish your goals or the frustration that you feel uh, in that life is not going the way that you thought it would. None of those kind of felt needs are the, the, the tip of the spear. 
it's the problem that we have with sin that needs to be paid for. And uh, I'm not saying that you need to lead every apologetic encounter that way. You don't have to just start with the four spiritual laws and, and tell them that they're going to hell. But what I do mean is a gospel presentation isn't a gospel presentation unless you can account for sin, the debt, the problem of sin, it being paid for by Christ's death and resurrection, and us joining him through faith. Um, and for that same reason, I don't think the exemplarist account is a successful atonement. And for those listeners that are like, okay, if that's true, why in the world do people try to defend this view? Like, what's up with this? It's so obviously wrong. Well, the rationale behind it really is it's not forgiveness. I'm using air quotes right now for those of you that can't see me. It's not forgiveness if you have someone else pay that debt or you have someone else stand in the way. Forgiveness, I think most people in this camp would say is only done if the one that's doing the forgiving suffers the consequences or doesn't force another party or the party itself to make up for whatever wrong there is. Mm -hmm. And so then you get the exemplar's view because none of that happens, right? God's wrath isn't satisfied. Christ dies an example, but it's not to pay any debt back. It's not to conquer any foes. It's simply to set forward this loving example of self-sacrifice for estranged people of God, us. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're wondering why would people believe that, it's really that. It's it's born out of, in my view, a misconstrued view of God's love and a misconstrued view of what it means to forgive someone. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next, the next view, uh, and, and this is probably the most popular view of the atonement, is uh, some version of substitution. And if you're familiar with this at all, you're probably familiar with penal substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. And uh, this view, especially PSA. for yeah, PSA is the shorthand <laughs> in uh, blogs that are arguing over this, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, academic textbooks, including our own. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> probably probably have that abbreviated somewhere. Yeah, but uh, substitutionary atonement, and under this would be several other things. Chris makes a point of, of distinguishing between several kinds of substitutionary atonement, government view. Um, what is this whole family of atonement views? Coy, you want to? Yeah, so I appreciate that you brought up penal substitutionary atonement. So we've already talked about what the word atonement means. And penal really has to do with penalty. Yeah. And so it assumes that there's a penalty for sin, and that penalty really has to be paid. And then the word substitutionary comes in to talk about how Christ takes that penalty as a substitute for sinners. Mm -hmm. And so while there are different kinds of substitutionary views, what they pretty much share in common is that Christ took the penalty for sinners in their place. And that's what makes it possible for sinners to be Mm -hmm. reconciled to God. Yeah, when I think of this view, I think of of Martin Luther's double exchange. So when you think about, okay, you have your sin and you deserve to be punished Mm -hmm. for it by God, what happens with Christ is there's a double exchange. You take his righteousness, he takes your sin, your punishment, he is punished on your behalf. That's penal substitution from a broad view. Now, like we said, there's a lot of versions of this when you get down to it. And I think it's probably worth covering a couple of the uh, pieces of pushback on penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, one of them being, how is it that an innocent person could be could pay your penalty and you get off free? Yeah, so to put some meat on this, 
so this will be a little bit better of a conversation. So think more concretely. Say there was a convicted murderer, mm-hmm. all right, and you wanted it off for some reason. I mean, who knows why? It's not important for the analogy. But no court anywhere is going to let you serve his life sentence or you take the death penalty on his behalf. And this example gets you in the gut. It gets you in the existential place because you wouldn't want that. You would want the murderer to take the punishment, right? Yeah, there's something about this that seems kind of unjust. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Albeit in our favor, but kind of unjust. Yeah. So one one more thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we want it to be right. We kind of want to close our eyes to, like, the issues. But this is where you see the ripple effects back out is – People that argue against this view will say, look, if you allow God to punish an innocent party and let a guilty party go free, um, then doesn't that make God unjust? And I think there are good answers to that. But that's the rub. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And people have used the phrase legal fiction to talk about substitutionary atonement as well. And I think that really strikes at the dilemma as well. If God is treating a guilty person as innocent and an innocent person as guilty, then that's a legal fiction. There's not any reality underneath it. And it's a legitimate problem for people to wrestle with. Yeah, so being that this is pretty central to the Christian faith, how do we solve this problem? Well, I actually think the Trinity has a lot to offer here. And I don't want to get us way in the weeds, but the son is a separate person within the Godhead, but he is also God. So it gets complicated, right? So God is making amends for his own wrath. And because he's not only the one to whom the debt is owed, but he's the one that's paying the debt, there's something there to say that it's within his prerogative. And it, 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 it makes the, it creates some space between the analogy I brought up and what actually happens on the cross. So I think that's part way to the answer, but I do think this is a really hard question to answer. Yeah, just to jump on what you said, I think this is the first time that we've really had to talk about the wrath of God. Penal substitutionary atonement brings this component into atonement, whereas several of the others do not. So it's different. There's a difference in saying sin has a debt that needs to be paid. And... uh, that actually sin has brought about the wrath of God that has to be satisfied. Those are similar things, but they're not the same. In the same way, there also has to be that second part of the exchange. So it's not just enough to be forgiven. So if you think about sin and righteousness, for example, if sin puts you in the negative and Christ's death just takes care of that penalty and gets you back to zero... Being at zero is not enough to be righteous in the sight of God and to, and to get to be with him. You actually have to be in the positives. Mm-hmm. So Christ's death has to do something that not only gets rid of sin, but also gives you his righteousness. That's why he has to live a perfect life and uh, gets you back into relationship, right? Relationship with God. So when we talk about uh, the wrath of God being satisfied, it's twofold. The wrath of God has to be exerted but the righteousness of Christ in his perfect life has to be distributed yeah. in order for the atonement to be whole. Yeah, and I think the word fiction that Coy brought up is important to recognize that there's a little bit of a nuance there. So it's the answer to the initial question that we brought up is that the cases are just disanalogous. It might, bring, it might hit you in the gut, but as Cole is saying, the reason this works out is if it were somehow possible for that innocent person, not the murderer, to basically swap lives with the murderer, to, mm-hmm. for it to be as if the innocent person had murdered 
and the murderer to be innocent. That's something like what is going on in the gospel, what is going on in penal substitution. And that's where I, th- this is a disputed topic. We might disagree about this. We haven't really talked about it. But I think that's where you have to go beyond the example that's given a lot. Chris gives this example of like a parking ticket. So you parked in the wrong place, you get a ticket, and you have a benevolent friend who pays the ticket on your behalf. That's not really what's going on in this. Not only because it's way more severe than that, not only because it costs Christ infinitely more than just paying you know, a, a, a penalty, he pays with his life, with his own blood. So it really has to be that Christ takes on the sin of the world. And this is where I say this is controversial. Does he take it on as if he had done it? Does he, in the most literal sense, he became sin who knew no sin so that God doesn't just treat him like a sinner. He actually becomes sin at that point. And what does that mean for him? I mean, this is really tricky stuff, but at some point, uh, the analogy that you're talking about, Jared, becomes more real than just, well, that kind of seems like injustice. You actually have to be joined with Christ somehow. And I think this is tangentially related, but this kind of illustrates the importance of how do we decide these questions, which is another issue that comes up in atonement questions, is you have this intuitive judgment, this gut feeling that it's not right. And yet, 2 Corinthians 5.21 kind of explicitly endorses what Cole has just said. So you have a choice at that moment. You can either trade in your intuitions for what the text seems to be saying you can reevaluate. I guess more than two. You can reevaluate what the text is saying. Maybe it's not saying what it apparently says, or mm-hmm. you can reject the text. Right. So sometimes we just need God to tell us this is the way it is, and it is right. Um, and uh, unfortunately, that's what you have to relegate yourself. Maybe not unfortunately. Fortunately, you have to relegate yourself to what God has told us. <laughs> Every time I hear "This is the way," I can't help but think about the Mandalore. <laughs> This is the way. And, you know, I do actually think that Jarrett's on to something here. And Cole mentioned how are we united to Christ earlier. And this kind of takes us back to that conversation about Adam. Because if Adam's sin applies to the whole human race and the world of the Bible, is it unreasonable to think that Christ's sacrifice can also benefit all the people who he is saving at the same time? I don't think it is. And I think there's an analogy between those two. And Crisp actually talks about this a lot in his book. And I think this is really helpful. Yeah, so Cole yeah. brought up one thing. Cole brought up a biblical way of reasoning real quick. We tend to think of ourselves in Western society as individuals, which is part of why there's a problem. Mm-hmm. The Bible, though, very clearly does not do that. So the king of Israel, if he fell or if he succeeded, was considered, it was, it was considered as if Israel fell or succeeded Mm -hmm. vice versa. So part of having a biblical logic, and again, I do think you can go deeper and explain why this is so, but it's apparent on the surface at least, is that they consider themselves groups, right? Right. Groups together. Identity of the group. Yeah. It's, it's really important. And, And this, this, in some ways leads us to our last version of the mm-hmm. atonement. Not that it doesn't stand on its own two feet, but I think it's probably best to explain it as an extension of or as an answer to some of the problems that people pose with uh, substitutionary atonement, which would be the union uh, version of the atonement. And, and this is a little bit newer just in terms of terminology, but, but in fact, if you look back at some of the older accounts Uh, This is a pretty popular view through history, even if it hasn't been categorized. And that would be exactly what we're talking about. 
in, in the Bible, the way that things are reasoned is through covenants and through covenant heads. And if we just think about the biblical logic of something like, like Romans from an 80,000-foot view, it's that in your sin and in Adam, everybody dies. Uh, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And in Christ, everybody who is in Christ has had their sins paid for by Christ. He has taken care of wrath of God and destroyed death, but he's also imparted his perfect life to us. And so the way that you get into these two groups is through Adam just being a human being. You are a part of Adam's family. Yeah. Um, of course, you are a card-carrying member because you sin as well. <laughs> so um, it's not like you haven't been paying your dues. You, you, you are a participatory member of Adam by sinning. Um, and you are a member of Christ through faith. And, of course, we could do 10 more podcasts on how that actually works. Mm-hmm. That's a big field of study mm-hmm. uh, just, to, just to wave over at this point. But let's just suffice it to say you're in Christ because of faith. Um, same way Abraham and believers now and throughout all of history uh, are in Christ is through their faith in the promises of God and the work of Jesus Christ. And so if that's the case, your union with him is what makes the mechanism work. The, the, the mechanism applies to you because you're in the group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that obviously trickles down to an individual level, but on a group basis, that's one explanation for how this would work. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Clay. Oh, well, I think that's right. You know, and Crisp uses a metaphor in the book that I think is really helpful. You know, we talked about that diseased acorn earlier and how it grew up into a diseased tree, and that illustrates how the sin of Adam impacts the whole human race. Well, Crisp talks about imagine if there could be a branch attached to the tree and grafted on with an antidote for that disease in it. And so simultaneously, as you have this diseased tree, you also have this new branch, and that would represent Christ attached to the tree, and the antidote is spreading into the tree and saving parts of the tree from this disease. And that's kind of a visual picture of Mm -hmm. how this idea of union works. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he uses another analogy that I think is really helpful of like streams. So, you know, Adam being upstream from all of humanity, and this kind of goes back to two podcasts ago. Adam being upstream for uh, from up uh, upstream for all of humanity. His kind of disease, as Coy described it, bleeds down into everybody else. And in, in a similar way, Christ being the head of the new humanity, being upstream of the new humanity, his righteousness bleeds down into the new humanity. And this is, I think, fundamentally what Paul is saying in that very confusing passage in Romans 5. Um, So you'll hear words talked about in these circles like covenant head, and you're having Mm -hmm. this conversation. Adam was the covenant head of all humanity. Jesus was the head, covenant head of the new humanity. So it does seem like the Bible's aware to make this connection, to answer the question of how an innocent person might die on behalf of not innocent persons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to, to, to wrap up the discussion here, there may be the sense that this is technical. Why does this matter? So I want to bring it back to a, a pretty practical point, which is what you believe about the atonement, whether explicit, if you can explain it, or whether implicit, and you've never really thought about it, and you just have in your mind how this has worked— actually does have some pretty important ramifications for your relationship with Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were going to say, hey, even if you never think about the atonement in terms of theories or in terms of different versions, um, if you're just reading your Bible and you have in your mind 
from hearing others or the way that you construed a version of the atonement, what, what effects might this have just in the everyday Christian life? Why, why does this matter? Well, I would say everyone thinks about Christ's death that's a Christian, all right? And it's not going to take you long to be like, hmm, what was Christ's death about? And so whether you know it or not, you are answering this question. And maybe you're answering it better, maybe you're answering it worse. So I hope, even though today's conversation was maybe more technical than we would typically go, I hope what happens is not that people begin to doubt and think that they're completely misunderstanding the death of Christ. I hope that the end result is simply that, A, they would gain a better understanding of the death of Christ, the death of Christ that, in my opinion, is fundamental to the whole biblical storyline. I mean, you go back to Genesis 3 Mm -hmm. when it's first mentioned, when God says to Eve, you know, the snake will bruise her son's heel and he will crush her head. I mean, you see it there from the get-go. And at the end, you see the Lamb of God who is slain. I mean, it's there from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. But I hope that understanding the right and wrong views and understanding that it really does seem, even from a theologically reasoning standpoint, that penal substitution is the best that it will give you assurance. Mm-hmm. Christ is not simply an example to be followed, and you're sitting there looking at him and being like, I could never follow that example. Mm-hmm. Christ also did not merely conquer sin and death and so on. He, he, he really did satisfy the wrath of God that rightly mm-hmm. lays on you. Yeah. And, and I think it should bring an immense amount of comfort. It's a very complicated way of actually saying something pretty simple. Yeah. Um, so that would be the first thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, Christians, I think, have a tendency to think about the atonement as how you get into Christianity. Like, this is the essential first step. And I just want to say that's totally true. But it's also true that what you believe about the atonement has big implications for your life moving mm. forward and how you live. And just two of them are, one, is it impacts how you think about baptism. Mm-hmm. In Romans 6, Paul actually says that Christians are baptized into the death of Christ, and they've died to sin. So even though baptism is a symbol of that spiritual reality, it's massively important. And then Paul, in that same passage, here's the second reason, goes on to say that Christians should actually think about themselves and their day-to-day life as dead to sin Mm -hmm. because they've participated in the death of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think the atonement is just about getting into Christianity. I think what you think about the atonement has a huge impact on how you live the remainder of the Christian life. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think the better you understand the atonement, the more secure you'll be in what Christ has done for you, and the more you'll understand what is available to you in the Christian life. Mm -hmm. So you think about things like uh, the exemplarist view, for example. If that's your conception of the atonement, then you know what Christ did applies to you insofar as you imitate what he did. Whereas I think probably some of the more complete versions of atonement are, hey, Christ did this regardless of what you ever did or can do for him. Um, and if you trust in him, you have full access, not just to his death on your behalf, but to his life, to his resurrection, um, there has been an exchange made. There's a, there is a union between the two of you. And so I think on a, on a theoretical level, you read your Bible with new eyes in seeing the things that Christ has guaranteed, the things that he's bought for you. And then on a practical level, you realize that uh, you didn't do anything to earn your salvation and you can't do anything uh, that will make God love you any more than he did when, when Christ went and died on the cross for you.
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.